0: Galatians chapter 4, continuing our series, which I've entitled Joy Killers. Galatians chapter 4, let's pray one more time before we begin. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we're so dependent upon the Spirit of God to illumine our mind, to open our eyes, to see your Son in this passage so I pray along with the psalmist in Psalm 43. Send out your light and truth. Let them lead us to your holy hill. Then we will go to the altar of God. To God, our exceeding joy. And so we declare this morning that you are Our exceeding joy. Open our eyes now to see Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. Would you think someone was crazy if they were so happy that they gouged their eyes out in order to give them to someone else? Would you gouge your eyes out and give them away to someone Well, there is a kind of joy that makes you willing to gouge your eyes out. We'll talk about what that means in this sermon. But by way of introduction, um, I really struggled and didn't know how to begin this sermon. And this morning it dawned on me, maybe I should dig up a couple of old guys and, and read some of their quotes because... The Twilight Zone did not help me with any episode about someone gouging their eyes out. There were no illustrations along those lines anywhere. So I thought I'd dig up a few dead people and we could look at something that they said, which will segue into where we're headed in the sermon. David Brainerd was an American missionary to the Native Americans. He was born in 1718, died in 1747. This is what he said, speaking about his ministry among the Native American Indians. He said, when my Indians were gripped by Christ crucified. I had no need to give them moral instructions. What he means is that the Indians that he was ministering to, that he had brought the gospel to, when they were so mesmerized by Jesus Christ, crucified, dying for them, he didn't have to tell them what to do in the Christian life because they were already mesmerized by their Savior. It just came naturally to them to sacrifice, to give, to serve, etc. The second quote is from Scottish pastor Robert Murray Machane, born in 1813, died in 1843. His most famous quote is this, For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Every time you look at yourself and your own life and your failures and your accomplishments, it doesn't matter which one it is, every time that you get morbidly introspective, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. Kind of segues us into our big idea in our sermon, which is this. Keep your eyes on Jesus or it will kill your joy. If you take your eyes off of Jesus... And what he has done for you, it will kill your joy. If you obsess about you and what you do for God or what you don't do for God, then it will kill your joy. If you take your eyes off of the finished work of Jesus Christ, then you'll be finished. And that is exactly what was happening to the Galatian churches. The Judaizers, a group of false teachers, had infiltrated the churches in the Galatian region and were telling these Gentile believers that they had to adhere to the Mosaic law in order to be justified, that they had to go back under the Mosaic law and keep all the festivals and you know, not eat certain foods and eat certain foods in order to be justified. They were telling the men and the boys that they had to be circumcised in order to be truly saved, The Judaizers were promoting a works-based righteousness that took the spotlight off of Jesus and put the spotlight on them and what they did for Jesus. Anytime you take your eyes off of Jesus, it will kill your joy. Look at verse 12 and hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, as we walk through the passage today, you can't help but notice the pastoral care that Paul has for the Galatians. He calls them brothers here. Later in verse 19, he will refer to them as my little children. And when Paul is using this language, what he's doing is reminding them that they are a part of the family of God. That the Galatians have been adopted by God the Father. That they are true sons and therefore heirs of the promise, heirs of the inheritance. They call on God as Father. We saw that in chapter 4 two weeks ago. But but what does Paul mean when he says... That he became like the Galatians and now the Galatians should become like him. What Paul is saying is that he used to try to use the Mosaic law as a means of gaining right standing with God and maintaining right standing with God. In his former life as a Pharisee, Paul used to preach the same message that the Judaizers were preaching. But when Paul heard and believed the gospel... He became like a Gentile, if you will, meaning he no longer tried to get righteousness through his obedience. Paul no longer tried to be a good Jew in order to be right with God. Once in his life, Paul rested in his obedience. And he talks about that in Philippians 3, and he says, I was blameless. I was good now he rests in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived the life that he could never live. And that's exactly what the Galatians needed to hear. It's as if they've switched roles. Paul became like a Gentile in that he no longer took pride in his Jewish upbringing and his strict Pharisaic law keeping. He no longer relied on obedience to the law to be made right with God. And that is... Exactly the position the Galatians were in when they heard the gospel. They didn't have the Old Testament law. They weren't trying to be made right through obeying Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. But now they were trying to become like Paul before he heard the gospel. They, in a sense, were trying to become Jews in order that they could become Christians. And that's why Paul says that he became like them and now they should become like him. In other words, Paul is saying that the Galatians need to turn their eyes back to Jesus. And the whole reason that Paul keeps beating the drum of the gospel in the book of Galatians is because he knows that their joy is at stake. Look at verse 12 through 15. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong, When Paul brought the gospel to these Galatian churches, they received it with joy. It was truly as the word gospel is. Gospel means good news. It was good news to them. They received it with joy. And it was God's sovereignty using suffering in the life of Paul that caused the gospel to go to the Galatians. Now, we don't know what illness Paul had that caused him to stop in this region of Galatia, but whatever it was, God used it to advance the gospel. Now, there's a whole other sermon that I could preach here on God using illness and suffering and pain and trials, that he uses those things to advance the gospel in our lives. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12-14, through 14, where he tells the Philippians, my imprisonment, being put in prison for the gospel, is actually advancing the gospel. The Greek idea is it's making a highway for the gospel to move. God does that with our trials, our suffering. To give you something to think about, along these lines of God using the pain in our lives... For our good, for the good of others, and for his glory. Paul Tripp says this. God loves me enough to take me where I would have never wanted to go. In order to produce in me what I could never have achieved on my own. God loves you enough to take you where you would never have wanted to go. In order to. To produce something inside of you that you could never produce on your own. Namely, Christ-likeness. Being conformed to the image of his son. God loved Paul enough to allow him to suffer some illness. An illness that Paul would not naturally choose. So that God could produce something in Paul that Paul could never achieve on his own. God took Paul to a place. A painful place. That Paul would never choose to go. But God's purpose in doing so was to produce something in Paul. To produce character. To make him more like Jesus. Because Paul could never work that up on his own. And in doing this, experiencing this illness, Paul brought the gospel to the Galatians. I mentioned David... Brainerd earlier. David Brainerd experienced something like this in his life. Now, back in the 18, 1700s, when Brainerd lived, in order to become a pastor, you had to go to seminary and you had to graduate. That's just how they did it back then. Brainerd made a comment one day about a tutor of his named Chauncey Whittlesey. And this is what he said about Chauncey. He said, he has no more grace than a chair. And then he was kicked out of seminary because he said that. Now, that's not even like a good cut down. And he was kicked out of seminary. One sentence changed the course of his life and the course of his ministry. And therefore, he couldn't be a pastor. And so he became a missionary to the Indians the Native American Indians. One little comment directed the course of his life that God would use him to reach the Native American Indians. God used an illness to bring Paul to Galatia. What was the illness? We don't know, but obviously it affected his eyes in some way because in verse 15 he tells the Galatians, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul's eyes were seriously messed up. They must have been swollen, full of pus, oozing pus, crusty. It must have been very gross to look at. You might have thrown up your lunch if you saw the apostle Paul. His eyes probably looked like something that some special effects makeup artist in Hollywood would create. In fact, even as he wrote the letter to the Galatians, his eyes were still messed up and he probably had a hard time seeing because look at Galatians 6, 11, chapter 6, verse 11. Look what Paul says. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul's eyes were so bad. His eyesight was so bad that he had to write with big letters so that he could see what he was writing. So how did the Galatians receive Paul. How did they receive Paul, the preacher with the pus oozing pupils? Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. They received Paul With excitement and with joy. They treated him as if he were an angel of God. As if he were Jesus Christ himself. What a reception. Instead of scorning him. They welcomed him with open arms. The phrase when he says you did not despise me. Despise me that phrase literally is you did not spit at me. Paul was a horrible sight To behold, and yet the Galatians did not spit at him or shoo him away. Instead, they embraced him. Maybe you saw the picture this week of the Pope embracing and kissing that man who was covered with all of those boils. That's a picture of what the Galatians did for Paul. And ultimately, it's a picture of what God does for us in Christ Jesus that he welcomes sinners. Like us. So you have to imagine Paul showing up with the gospel, but he's not a preacher in a three piece suit with nicely groomed hair. Paul looked rough. Paul looked like he just got out of the octagon and had been in a mixed martial arts fight. Perhaps you follow MMA, but Paul looked like he was in a street fight. Paul looked like he got in the octagon and had had fought uh, UFC heavyweight champion Cain Velasquez for five rounds. His face was mangled and marred. We know from scripture that Paul was beaten many times because of the gospel. We know from scripture in the book of Acts that he was stoned with stones and left for dead in Acts 14 verse 19 they pelted Paul with rocks and thought they killed him off and then he gets up and walks right back into the city and that's why he says in Galatians 6 17 from now on let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus in other words if Paul applied to be your senior pastor you would have thrown his resume away the moment you saw his picture which is what happened to me here when i applied i sent in the roughest looking picture of me and i think i was quickly discarded and then someone pulled it out and said maybe we should reconsider this rough looking individual this passage is very personal to me i've lived it But it was this illness that God used to lead Paul to Galatia so that he could bring the gospel there. And this illness brought good to the Galatians because they heard the gospel. And they didn't just hear the gospel, they embraced it with joy. They were excited about Jesus and they loved him. But after a while, they turned their eyes to a new gospel, which is a false gospel. They were bewitched by the Judaizers who had cast a spell over them, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. They took their eyes off of Jesus and it ruined them spiritually. The Galatians should have taken notes during one of Paul's sermons because I'm sure one of his big ideas would have been, keep your eyes on Jesus or it will kill your joy. And that's exactly what happened. They took their eyes off of Jesus, and it killed their joy. Look at verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This verse here, Galatians 4.15, is where I got the title for our series in Galatians, Joy Killers. Now, some of the other translations capture this idea. The ESV doesn't, but the New English Translation, the Net Bible, translates it this way. Where then is your sense of happiness now? Or the New Century Version. You were very happy then, but where is that joy now? The Galatians took their eyes off Jesus And it killed their joy. They began focusing on what they were doing for God. They were trying to be good enough to earn God's love. Listen, you can never be good enough to earn God's love. Jesus secured God's love for you. He doesn't love you more if you're faithful with your quiet times. Get that out of your head. He loves you because of his son, Jesus And the Galatians forgot that they were adopted sons of God. That they could call on God as father. And they were trying to earn their way back. And by doing that, as we saw two weeks ago, they were becoming orphans again. Trying to be good enough. Trying to be good Christians. And this killed their joy. Because they weren't focusing on Jesus and what he had done for them. Keep your eyes on Jesus or it will kill your joy. We take joy seriously here at Grace. And that's why our mission statement says that we exist to ignite a passion in every person. To glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in every thing. This is is what we are about here at Grace. That's it, right there. You want to know what we're about? We exist to ignite a passion in every person, to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. We want every person that walks through these doors to glorify and enjoy God. And we want to ignite that passion in every person, from the nursery all the way up to teenagers, or seniors' ministry, We want to ignite ignite that passion in every person, including ourselves. We are all about joy here. We're all about finding joy in God in everything that we do and everywhere that we go. Enjoying God wherever we are and whatever we're doing. We don't like joy killers around here. We want your joy in Jesus to spread like wildfire. We want to be a people who are so happy in Jesus that it changes everything about us and everything about our city and everything about this world. Now, why? Why do we focus on joy in Jesus so much? There are several reasons. One is because God commands it. And if God commands something, it's a good idea to do it. Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 through 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. It's a warning from the law. Psalm 100, verses 1 through 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with joy gladness, come into his presence with singing. I could go on and on until the end of this service with verses that talk about us finding our joy in God. Another reason is that God knows, and this is the reason why God commands joy. God knows that if we don't have our joy rooted in what Jesus has done for us, then we'll succumb to the temptations of our flesh and the temptations of this world. God knows that if we aren't satisfied with him, then we will seek pleasure elsewhere. God commands this kind of joy because it brings him glory. Which is why John Piper is spot on when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's why we focus so much on joy around here. God is most glorified when you can say to the world, Jesus, you satisfy me more than everything. Jesus, you satisfy me more than ice cream, more than money more than sex, more than my spouse, more than my children, more than my grandchildren. When you can say, Jesus, you stoke the affections and the passions of my heart more than anything else in this world, then you glorify God big time. You glorify God in a way that you don't glorify him any other way. It's when you say, Jesus, you are my everything. Jesus, you are enough. You are all that I want. When you say that, you glorify God. Because you're telling the world, Jesus is my treasure. He's my everything. You take it all away, just don't touch Jesus. You can have my home, my family, my cars, my bank account, but don't take Jesus away from me. If you can say that today, you bring God glory big time. And that's why we focus on joy around here, because it brings God glory that's the number one reason we want to glorify God but finding joy in Jesus gives us strength to resist the temptations of this world and one of the temptations that we face in this world is that we try and gain and maintain favor with God we just can't seem to come to grips with the fact that Jesus paid it all that he's done everything for us we think to ourselves, it's such good news, there has to be a catch. Isn't there some like small print at the bottom of the screen that you can't read? There's a catch in there somewhere. There's not a catch. Jesus paid it all. If you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus, you have access to God 24-7. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you're doing, you have access to God. And the Galatians heard that message and received it wholeheartedly and it excited them and it brought them much joy. But the moment that they took their eyes off of Jesus, it killed their joy. And that's why there's another reason we focus on joy so much around here. Because God knows that it will cause us to sacrifice for others, which goes against our very nature. The Galatians were so full of Christ-centered, gospel-intoxicating joy that they would have ripped their eyes out and given them to Paul. They would have done anything to help him because they were so overjoyed that he brought the gospel to them. They would have even gouged out their eyes. As verse 15 says, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And that's why we stress joy so much around here. When your joy in Jesus seeps down into the nooks and crannies of your heart, you'll start laying your life down for others. The Galatians teach us that there is a kind of joy That will cause you to be willing to gouge your eyes out for someone. Not literally of course. But Paul's point in saying this. Is that the joy that a believer feels when they really get the gospel. When they really understand it. When it clicks for them. The joy that a believer feels when they really get the gospel. Will cause them to do whatever they can to ignite a passion in every person, to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Keep your eyes on Jesus or it will kill your joy. I know this from personal experience. Not only was the Galatians' joy killed, but their relationship with Paul was strained ...because they took their eyes off of Jesus. Look at verses 16 through 20. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, the Judaizers, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul is perplexed because the Galatians are are starting to turn away from this fixated gaze that they once had on Jesus, from staring at Jesus. They're turning away from the, the gospel And when they did this, this caused the Galatians to start viewing the Apostle Paul as an enemy. He told them the truth of the gospel. That they didn't have to do anything to be made right with God. And Jesus did it all. And yet now they think that he's the enemy. All of this relational strain Is because the Judaizers were trying to throw Paul under the proverbial bus. They were trying to secure the allegiance of the Galatian churches. And here's how they were doing it. The Judaizers were making much of the Galatians. They were pandering to the Galatians and trying to get their loyalty. The Judaizers were making much of the Galatians. So that the Galatians would turn and then make much of them. The Judaizers were trying to win fans. They were trying to get as many followers on Twitter as they could. They were trying to get as many friends on Facebook as they could. They were trying to fill their churches with people who were dependent on them. The Judaizers were not telling the truth because they wanted their churches to grow. Because they wanted to be popular. Because they wanted people to talk about them and their ministries. The Judaizers wanted followers who glorified them. But not Paul. Paul wanted gospel partners who glorified Christ. Gospel partners who kept their eyes on Jesus. Now Paul told the truth to the Galatians, which is what preachers should do, right? We're called to preach truth, even if that truth causes people to leave the church. Paul preached truth because he knew that the truth of the gospel was the only thing that would lead to transformation in the lives of the Galatians. All Paul wanted was that his babies, his children, his kids, the Galatians, all he wanted was for them to grow to maturity in the faith. He didn't want them to remain spiritual babies who were dependent upon him and his teaching. That's what the Galatians wanted. We want you to be dependent on what we tell you. Paul said, I want you to grow and mature in the faith that you can read scripture and make decisions. He wanted them to grow up spiritually. And that's why he says in verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul uses the imagery here of a pregnant woman to describe how he feels for them. The verb here for Christ being formed in them refers to the process whereby a fetus grows up into an infant, develops into an infant. And Paul wants them to grow up spiritually. He wants them to keep their eyes on Jesus so that sanctification, so that Christ-likeness, being conformed to the image of Christ so that that will take place in their life, He wants them to realize that they are free from obedience to the law as a basis for their right standing with God. Paul wants them to understand it's Jesus' obedience to the law that makes you right with God. And then, when you have that position, then you go back and you obey the law. And that's why Paul says he's perplexed in verse 20. He can't seem to wrap his mind around the fact that they are so quickly giving up the good news of the gospel. They have been regenerated. They have the Holy Spirit. They are heirs according to the promise. They are forgiven of their sins. They have right standing with God. They are blameless in God's eyes. They are justified. They have been adopted into God's family. They are sons of God. They call on God as Father. And they want to trade all that in so that they can get on the performance treadmill and try to earn all of it. And that's why Paul is perplexed. And that's why Paul would be perplexed if he came into many churches today, because we do this same thing. We think that the things that we do make God love us more. We think if I'm faithful with my quiet time, then God's going to smile on me more. He'll, He'll love me more than these other Christians that don't read their Bible, than these other Christians that don't serve at the church. We buy into this Judaizer mindset all the time. If I do something, then God will love me more. Or if I don't do it, then he's going to frown, and he's going to be sad, and he's going to be angry. And that's why Paul keeps redirecting their gaze to Jesus. And that's why Paul keeps talking about the gospel. And that's why Martin Luther said, Here, I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the purpose of the law, but it teaches me what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, to wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. You see what Luther is saying is that the principal principle i can't talk today the principal article of the Christian faith is the gospel we must. Know it well. We must teach it to others and we must beat it into their heads continually. I'm here to swing the gospel hammer in your life, Grace. That's my main job, to beat the gospel into your head continually. I'm here to tell you every week, keep your eyes on Jesus or it will kill your joy. Whatever it is, If you take your eyes off Jesus, it will kill your joy. Because as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We can manufacture and pump out 10,000 idols to obsess over. So let me ask you today, what are you obsessing over today? Because here's the litmus test to see what is an idol in your life. Where does your mind naturally drift what does your mind naturally drift to when you're driving to work what's the thing that has you captivated there's a good chance that it's an idol what are you obsessing about today is it your parenting am i good enough god i want to be a good parent i want to disciple my kids is that what it is because you 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 do like me You buckle down and say, I'm doing it this week. We're going to read scripture. We're going to pray. I'm going to focus on discipleship, and I do good for a couple days, and then I don't. And then what happens? I focus on how bad of a parent I am, and I get morbidly introspective. And then what happens? It kills my joy because I've taken my eyes off of Jesus and what he has done for me, and I'm focusing on what I don't do for him. Maybe it's in your marriage. Is our marriage good enough? Do we have a Christ-honoring, God-glorifying marriage? Yes, we want all of that. But isn't marriage hard? Don't you sometimes say some things to your spouse that you think you don't mean, but then you hear Jesus' words saying whatever's in your heart is going to come out through your mouth, and then you realize you really did mean it, and then what? You despair. I said that. I thought I didn't mean it, but if Jesus is correct, I really meant it get morbidly introspective and that will kill your joy what about the spiritual disciplines am i good enough am i doing it am i reading the bible enough am i praying enough am i serving enough am i giving enough if you're like me sometimes you miss your quiet time and you start to feel guilty and you think oh i can't believe i did that and you despair because you get morbidly introspective looking at you and what you don't do for god and the reverse is this, if you're good and you're faithful, and you've been faithful since January 1 with your three chapters a day, you're making it through the Bible, then what happens? You get prideful. And then you look at other Christians and say, I can't believe they don't read the Bible as much as me. They must not love Jesus enough as much as me because they don't read the Bible like I do. They don't serve in church like I do. And then you get prideful. And in that moment, what you are doing is taking your eyes off of Jesus, focusing on yourself, and it kills your joy because it drives you crazy that those other Christians don't do what you do it's a trap keep your eyes on jesus or it will kill your joy i don't care what it is that you're obsessing over if it's not jesus then your joy will be slaughtered keep your eyes on jesus or it will kill your joy if you keep your eyes on jesus Your joy will overflow. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll sacrifice and serve others like the Galatians who were willing to gouge out their eyes to give them to Paul. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll embrace the truth of God's word as it comes into your life. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll grow spiritually. It's really that simple. Christianity is really just about God's people keeping their eyes on Jesus. Robert Murray Machane said, For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. In the letter that he had, that that comes from, that he was writing to someone, he says this, quoting Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Grace, listen. For every look at self of prideful spiritual accomplishments or sadness and grief because you're not doing the spiritual disciplines, whatever the case, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Live much in the smiles of God. If you're a Christian and you've turned from your sins, and you're trusting in Jesus alone for righteousness, then live much in the smiles of God. He's not frowning at you, Christian. He's not mad at you anymore. Bask in his beams. Feel, as Machane says, feel his all-seeing eye. Now that should disturb you. His all-seeing eye? Yeah, he knows everything. He knows all your mess. He knows all your junk. He knows all your sin. He knows the thoughts that you think that if we revealed it here on the screen right now, most of us would run out and we'd say, you think that? He knows the words that you say. He knows the things that you do. And he knows the motives that are driving everything that you think, say, and do. And if you're a Christian, his all-seeing eye sees that. And yet Machane says, feel subjective feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms christian know that god the father loves you his all-seeing eye is settled on you in love so now just sit back and repose in his almighty arms like a, a newborn baby and a parent holding it for the first time that's how god feels about you christian Just rest in his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. We struggle to believe it. And that's probably why your word says over and over, over and over again, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Because we're just so prone to not believe it. God, it just seems too good to be true. There's got to be a catch. It's only possible because of your son. You are so enamored. You so delight in the work of your son, Jesus. That when the spirit applies that to our lives, you see your son. And so you can't help but feel this much affection and love for us. And it's all because of Jesus. And so we come back and just say, thank you for sending Jesus. That he lived the life we could never live because we're sinners. That he died the death that we all deserve because we're sinners. And you raised him from the dead to prove that it is good and true and perfect and right. Help us to keep our eyes on your son. Because, Father, that's where your eyes are settled. Do it by the Spirit for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen.